Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From Tula Tacos and Amigos in downtown Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Maida, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business, Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. I haven't lived in a world without The Karate Kid. The movie actually came out the same year I was born, 1984, so, so karate has pretty much always been around for me. I took taekwondo, and I washed out after getting my blue belt. I guess you could call that a lack of discipline, and I wouldn't say that you're wrong. I never got past tenderfoot in the Boy Scouts either. Um, karate wasn't always a fixture of youth activity in the U.S., however. It took organizations like Acadiana Karate to lift it off the ground, and Acadiana Karate has done it for decades. My guest, uh, Stacy Knight Mejia, and her husband, Pablo, run the gym at a space in Lafayette, but Acadiana Karate has been around for a long time. Pablo took over the business in 1978 and expanded it from Crowley, and today, Acadiana Karate offers instruction in mixed martial arts with methods based in a variety of disciplines, judo, taekwondo, which I failed at, jiu-jitsu, aikido, kung fu, and American Shotokan. Uh, one major change over the last two decades is the number of women training and competing in martial arts. Today, around 30 or 40 percent of Stacy's students are women and girls. She's a lawyer by training, but left the legal profession to make a career out of karate herself. Stacy Knight Mejia, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. Good morning. Good or good, what would I say, happy lunch, Christian? <laughs> I think happy lunch is, is, is customary. Okay. That's fine. Um, speaking of gender gaps, there's been much written about representation in the world of art. And a recent data analysis of 18 U.S. art museums found that 80% of their collections are men, are men. And there's been important progress, however, in leadership roles. And in 2005, around 30% of museum directors were women. And today it's 47%. Uh, my guest, Luann Greenwald, figures into that number. She directs the Hilliard University Art Museum and has worked to connect the museum and UL with the rest of the community since taking over in 2014. She's established educational programs, increased staff, and rolled out a free Wednesday program that helps open the museum's doors to the broader community. Uh, Luann has a long history in the arts, collections, and fundraising, working as a consultant in Washington, D.C. and in L.A., where she cut her teeth as curator and educator of the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. Luann Greenwald, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thanks, Christian. Great to be with you. So, Stacy, I, I feel like um, there's a lot more competition in the karate space today. And I'm not just meaning, like, from other karate gyms. I mean, there are lots of youth activities that aren't just, like, soccer, which is what I grew up doing, or tennis and things like that. So, so how do you, in that environment, how do you guys differentiate differentiate yourselves? Well, we really focus on a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, how do I say this? Uh, people are misguided about what we do, um, about martial arts. They watch movies and see what they see on TV, and martial arts is, the type of martial arts we train is more life skill based. Mm -hmm. So um, today, with a lot of single moms, grandparents raising their kids, mm -hmm. We are doing a lot of teaching kids how to be better leaders, mm -hmm. teach them more respect, discipline, focus. And so we kind of are in their daily life on helping them cope with everything in their mm -hmm. life, not just in martial arts, you know, self-defense part of you. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're more of a life skill training based program. So that's kind of where we expanded that. What does that look like, you know, when a kid's in the gym and I keep calling it a gym I, I imagine this we like, call it a dojo a dojo thank you <laughs> it's okay. uh, I feel like I should have known that um, so, no, it's okay. so so when a kid's in the dojo and like you're, you're, you're taking that approach I mean they're learning um, different techniques I'm sure but so, so where does that sort of life skill element actually come well we play? teach them how to believe in themselves like you know we do positive reinforcement uh, in our training like um, 
we're rewarded at home for making good choices, but also as they're training through their different belts, we try to motivate them to keep going. And we break our curriculum down in, in bites and pieces they can keep getting encouraged. And if there is a discipline problem at home and you know at home or school, they their parents come and we address it and we'll say, hey, you know, um, we'll we'll tell them you know how you affect at how you act at home will affect your ability to go forward. So in their in their rank system in the belt system. So it's all intertwined in their uh, reinforcement of making good choices. They will continue their rank going forward. Hmm. So Luann, I, I think the art world can maybe be intimidating for a lot of people if they don't know where to get started, maybe. And like when you're kind of opening the doors and you're trying to say like, come in and understand what we have to offer, say, like after school programming for the kids, right? I mean, um, I, I guess what I'm curious is like, as you begin to emphasize outreach and find ways to sort of connect with the larger public, I mean, have you noticed a difference about who's actually showing up at the museum? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been at the museum for seven years now, and our audience has grown significantly. One of the things we do, because we're a university art museum, so we have access to so many resources across campus, we really strive for interdisciplinary programming in, in our museum. And so, you know, rather than just having conversations about paintings, we give people opportunities to experience the art in, in other ways, maybe through music. So we might have a music class from UL, uh, create a musical composition in relationship to work from our collection, for example. So you have these different ways to connect to art. And I have found... I remember when I first moved here to Lafayette, I was really struck at what a com creative community it is, and people are very entrepreneurial, and yet sometimes they don't connect to an art museum. You know, there is that sort of disconnect, that feeling like that's not a place I would go to. And so we really strive to talk about art as creative expression, you know, so it's not some kind of exclusive or elite practice. Rather, it's something that's innate in all of us. We just need to kind of unleash that that energy. So one thing that I've, I've observed, right, is you all have programs like, you know, yoga in the galleries was a thing I think you all did for a while. I don't know if you're still doing it. And, and like things that were kind of like the idea was just to bring somebody into the museum, potentially maybe for something else, and but you're just kind of in the environment. And so, uh, you know, it sounds like that maybe there's a common thread here in terms of like reaching kids in certain places in their lives and you're trying to like, you know, kind of move values in by osmosis. So like, is, is, is there a... Have you found that, you know, kids are, you're reaching kids who are younger? I mean, like, and, and how do they come to it? I guess it's maybe a question. I feel like I was, went through art school or something like that when I was a kid. I learned how to paint, but it seems like there's something more happening here. Yeah, I mean, you know, probably most of the young kids who come to the museum are coming first on a, a school group, you know, school field trip. Um, and they have a tour with our educator in the galleries. Um, and then, you know, our hope is that uh, they go home and talk about it with their parents and they come back as a family. We host a seasonal play day event. Um, during the pandemic, that's been an online event. Actually, in December, December 18th, we're going to have a kind of hybrid in-person and online play day, but it's a great opportunity for families to come to the museum together and, and to make art together. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that hands-on experience, I think, is a really important part of instilling in people a love of art and a love of museums. So, you know, Stacy, speaking of, you know, hands-on, right? I mean, I feel like there's a kind of a, a bit of a cultural shift in how people approach you know, conflict, right, <laughs> in the world. Yes. I'm trying to avoid saying violence because I know that's not the right term exactly. here. Um, you know, but, but I mean, I, I guess I have two questions. I mean, like, one, what do you tell parents who might come into this and say, like, you know, I don't know if I want my kid learning self-defense skills. And, and then, you know, two, 
has there really been a shift in the way parents are even concerned about it? I mean, I could just be wrong, and parents are not really coming with those concerns at all. Well, the main thing we try to tell people is self-defense really begins from a verbal conflict. 90% of all the bullying is verbal first, and then it escalates. So what we do is we teach our kids verbal, you know, how to respond just you we have the three rules of bully self-defense we talk about you are what you look like you are how you sound like you are how you respond so you don't want to walk around present yourself as a victim or weak now we tell our kids look it's not okay for anybody to bully you but there are some things that you can do to you know you send off the right messages that you're more confident so yes i have parents all the time that'll call me well i'm concerned if you know i put him in karate he's going to be more aggressive i said no it's just the exact opposite we want to teach you how to walk away from a situation, recognize the situation, and give them the verbal skills to to defend themselves. And then if, if you know, the bully still keeps coming back, then they can physically deflect the situation. They know how to block and, you know, and get yeah. away. Can you give me an example? I mean, like, what, like, like you know, <laughs> okay, I feel like... For I'm, instance, uh, you know, someone, a bully, you have a bully that says, hey, you look stupid today. Mm-hmm. And you're like, great. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> All right. And just, or, 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 hey, that's the look I was going for. So before we used to tell our kids, just walk away, ignore. Yeah. And that's not always, you know, you have to acknowledge that, you know, to the bully, you know, you, you said what you said. Uh-huh. I acknowledge you said what you said, but I'm okay. I'm okay. You're, you didn't get what you wanted today. You didn't uh-huh. get the response you wanted. So move on to somebody else. So that's when we look at them in their eyes with confidence. That's the big thing. We have to teach our kids yeah. how to look people in the eyes and give that outer appearance that we we're okay and we can defend ourselves if we have to. It, so it sounds like you're teaching people to use humor to deflect it. I mean, that, that, absolutely. I mean, we I, I think we all laughed here. Yeah. We try that first, obviously. Uh, that's really interesting, uh, Luann. I mean, something I'm curious about is when you guys are thinking about what you program in, you know, the museums, galleries. Like, you know, especially since you've you've spent time elsewhere in the country. Like, you know, to what extent do you balance the need to give people something that has some familiarity to them or like a touchstone in their own cultural lives so they feel like, oh, this is interesting, but also expose them to something they may not even know, have a frame of reference for, right? I mean, that can be, art can be very challenging in a, in a positive way. That's what I like about it. Um, but so how do you actually balance that? Yeah, uh, well, you're right. It's a, an attempt to keep a balance. <laughs> so when we plan a season of exhibitions, we're always looking for multiple ways that people might connect with the artwork. I mean, one of our goals is always to make the work relevant to our community and our campus. Um, so, you know, we do that through our interpretation strategies, which is not that interesting to talk about. <laughs> but um, we uh, we try to mix it up. You know, sometimes we have traditional exhibitions like uh, Winston Churchill's landscape paintings, and then we'll do something that's much more um, more modern, uh, thinking about uh, like Kara Wood's geometric abstraction, for example. Um, so, you know, we just tr- try to have a pretty broad offering because, you know, we're serving both our students on campus who are interested in the art of their moment and need to be exposed to that. But then we're also dealing with our broader community and, you know, people who have a deep love of more traditional art, and we want to serve that need as well. So it's always about kind of mixing it up. I'm curious if, like, if that has an impact on sort of the revenue side of it. I know, like, say, like, in the theater world, like, for, for dance groups, right, you know, they put on the, the Nutcracker once a year, and that kind of pays for the entire year programming, right? So I'm kind of thinking, like, is there kind of a go-to for a museum where they're saying, like, well, we're going to, I mean, I know this would be really expensive, we're going to get a van, touring Van Gogh thing, right, so that I can have, 
I don't know, I mean, William Kentridge in the top or something like that, right? So is there something that you kind of program because you know you kind of have to anchor your funding or you anchor your your, your audience in that way? Uh, sort of. I mean, um, certainly we have a, an exhibitions budget every year that we have to figure out how we're going to spend it and how we can realize all the exhibitions that we want to do. But, you know, uh, you've probably heard the phrase blockbuster exhibition, which, you know, like the immersive Van Goghs is definitely a good example of that, although that's not really an art exhibition, right? It's more of an an experience, a cultural experience that's traveling. Um, But, you know, like the people often refer to the King Tut exhibition that uh, came through Louisiana years ago, and, you know, the long lines of people around the block that were eager to get into that exhibition. you know, something like that offers an opportunity for sponsorship. It's a, you know, it's going to have great marketing value sure. to sponsors who are interested. So from that perspective, those sorts of exhibitions um, can bring in a lot of money. Plus, uh, most institutions would charge an additional admissions fee to host that kind of an exhibition. Yeah. So they can be, you know, quite uh, lucrative. Mm-hmm. I think the most recent exhibition um, that I read about as a blockbuster was um, the work of the Japanese artist. Um, oh, it just went out of my head. Anyways, the Cleveland Museum of Art presented that exhibition. I was able to see it there. And um, Yayoi Kusama is the artist. And uh, it was quite spectacular. It was also quite expensive because it was sculptural installations. They were actually mirrored rooms that you walked into. Um, I mean, just the crates for that alone, you can imagine. uh, And transporting these rooms, essentially, from one venue to another is quite costly. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Bader. I'm talking with Luann Greenwald of the Hilliard University Art Museum and Stacy Knight Mejia of Katie Karate. Stacy, trying to figure out if a way I can kind of ask a similar question to you, which is like, you know, you guys, I'm assuming, offer a line of different types of programs, classes, right? I mean, I know that to some extent you're blending some of these methods together, but I mean, is there in sort of the world of sort of martial arts training a thing that every dojo is going to do because they know that sort of attracts your baseline of business, but these, you know, we have also these kind of other programs that we need to offer for people maybe more advanced or kind of have a more, uh, for lack of a better word, refined interest in the martial arts, right? Well, we, you know, we've been in business for like 43 years. So we've kind of evolved and the martial arts has kind of evolved through that since the Karate Kid you talked about. So at some point in our journey, we did like fitness, kickboxing, Mm -hmm. things like that. But we just decided, you know, children are our main market. That's who we feel most comfortable training. I mean, we have adults mm-hmm. that we train, but all of our programs are age specific. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll do bully self-defense seminars, parent, you know, if you're talking about things that a school that's attracting their different clientele, we'll mm-hmm. do women awareness, self-defense, you know, seminars, mm-hmm. two hour self-defense seminar, just to give awareness. I don't believe I can teach a person how to defend themselves in two hours, but it is good to teach people, you know, awareness because uh, self-defense is pretty much 90% looking making good choices and being aware of your environment so that's a big part of that learning that but um you know so we we do different things like that but at one point we were doing when uh Tybo came out and we were doing all of that um and that was a pretty big market but now because there's been so many you know fitnesses yeah. a lot more health clubs and things like that we just don't we'd rather focus on what we're good at and what we love the most is the kids yeah I, so I mean I hear you that you guys are kind of focused on what you do best but I, I guess it's something I wouldn't have considered is like I'm sure you have to monitor trends too right I mean so how do you keep track of that we do I mean um like at one point when we were uh, we had offered after school martial arts mm-hmm. because 
parents need daycare and we thought well this is a great mix that kids can come do their homework and then they can get the mar their martial arts lessons in after school and then be done for the evening go home and be home early so at one point we were doing that but um it just didn't financially work out because um it took away from our evening program and we just again feel like that's where our you know we're best at and so it kind of it kind of uh, fragmented our our resources and what we wanted to focus on so we decided just to stick with children's programs uh, adults teen and adults martial arts um, now we have the trends like when the UFC came really big um, we had already been doing ground self-defense in our that's why we have a mixed system um, but we did focus a little bit more on that but um, really it's just about what works and my husband's always we're always training and in learning new te techniques. We're not like stuck in the old, you know, my master did this, you know, 200 years ago. Ooh, almost. And um, we're gonna never stay from that, you know, philosophy or, or technique. We, we wanna evolve. Where do you guys find employees? I mean, I presume like you're not like, <laughs> no. just like always no. doing this yourself. I mean, so, so like, are you training these people yes. and their apprentices and then one day, yes. they, you know? They, yes, we homegrown. We don't hire outside of our system. Mm -hmm. um, so we have kids that are people that have been trained with us 10, 15 years, 20, you know, long time. And they've been with us. And so we, as they grow up in a system, we have a leadership program starting at 12 and up. So when they become old enough we start they'll help assist us in class just like an internship mm -hmm. and so they can help with summer camps and events and things like that and um so they learn how to leader um, you know leadership roles and then they we give them a little more to do in each class and so it's just like they would as an internship for a school teacher you know mm -hmm. you're kind of watching and mentoring as you go on so that's how we do it so Luana, kind of you mentioned earlier that that you know, part of the role that you guys have as with your connection to the university, right, is sort of exposure to the students and opportunities for them to see what they're working on sort of expressed, perhaps. I mean, I guess I'm curious, like, is there a business development component with that, too? Or maybe an employee workforce, I guess, development is a better, better way of saying it. I mean, like, where, you know, people are looking to the museum, like, if I'm an artist and I am kind of, like, learning how to make it as an artist, does Hilliard play a role in, in like, if I'm a painter and figuring out how to market myself or how to work in the gallery environment I mean how does that how does that actually work we do yeah we have um, we have a couple of employment opportunities for students I mean we employ students in our front of house at the museum so there are students who have paid jobs you know working in the front of the museum and they come from all different kinds of backgrounds although I would say a lot of them are art students yeah. um, we also have some internship opportunities and um, our curator Ben Hickey right now is mentoring an art student and she's you know working on curatorial research and um, she has photography skills so she's helping out with photographing the permanent collection mm -hmm. you know so um, there are lots of different ways for students to get that kind of experience at the museum um, you know you often find at museums the uh, preparator staff the the uh, employees who install the exhibitions are often artists mm -hmm. you know they're people who are good with working with materials and building caseworks for exhibitions and installing art on walls um, so there are some real practical job opportunities for for artists that way mm -hmm. um, so yeah there's you know I guess I'm just like, it, one thing I'm thinking about here, the connection point is like, you know, you have a curator, right? If the curator moves on to another job, like, where do you find another curator, right? I mean, it's like, it's not like Lafayette is just like crawling with, 
you know, <laughs> people who curate museums, or maybe they are, and we just haven't found them yet. But I mean, it seems like, like you have to have a pipeline for your workforce. I Man, I understand like some of it's going to be student labor. But there's some things you guys do which is highly specialized. And so, like, where do these people come from? Yeah, I mean, when you have a vacancy like that for a curatorial position, which is so central to the museum and its function, uh, you usually would do a national search for yeah. something like that. I'm hoping I don't need to do that, <laughs> Christian. <laughs> Hopefully Ben's listening to the show and he knows he's very valued. Uh, so just switching gears yes. a little bit, I mean, I, I want to put a question to both of you, uh, which is sort of like, I mean, what's something about what you do that people always get wrong? Well, especially in the martial arts, that it makes you more violent, that um, it really is about a journey. It's about a personal journey in the martial arts, about working on yourself mm -hmm. physically, mentally, and um, spiritually, we would say. And that it's so much more, and the things that you learn about yourself that you can apply not only when you're training the physical part of it, but also in everything you do. I mean, I got my black belt in um, 1980, and I went to law school I mean I you know I'm sorry yeah 80 and then went to law school in 84 and that was the best thing I ever did was my black belt training to get me through law school because it gave me the mental perseverance to say I can do this and uh, to believe in myself and that's really the biggest thing that people don't understand do you, do you think that's driven mostly just by like representations of the martial arts in popular culture, right? Or even just like, no. you know, I'm thinking about like, if somebody asked me like, where is martial arts applied today? And I might say the UFC, right? Which has right. like, you know, a specific no. connotation to it. I mean, is that why most people come to it and they don't kind of misunderstand what you do? Well, they think it's funny and a joke. I mean, you know, like Bruce Lee and youth mm -hmm. movies and things like that. I mean, you know, in UFC, the violence, and they yep. think, well, I don't want my kid doing that. Yep. I mean, you know, uh, or, or if you're a professional, well, I can't go in the ring. I'm gotta gotta go to work on Monday morning. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I got a job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I can't you know, support my kids. Yeah. Um, but no, um, yeah, I, I think it's the public perception, and that's that was what my husband and I's mission statement was to educate the community on the other benefits of martial arts in all, in different age groups and how it can be applied outside of the dojo, not just come and work out, punch and kick a bag. Yeah, you know kind of thing. What about you, Luann? What's something people get wrong about running museums? Uh, well, I really connected to Stacy's comment about public perception and, you know, <laughs> the idea that the museum is not a place where I would go, for example, because it's elitist or it's, you know, exclusive in some way. Um, and, you know, I think everybody can have a great time at the museum. You know, there's going to be something that's going to blow you away, something that you've never seen before, you know, that broadens your horizons and, you know, gives you new perspectives. Um, I think that's that's the magical piece that sometimes if people aren't willing to walk through the door, they, they can miss it, you know. Um, I guess the other thing that I w would say is often uh, misperceived is, you know, museums have collections of objects that they are the stewards of, um, and uh, they're, you know, one-of-a-kind works of art. So we also have to be very protective of our artworks. Um, so this kind of don't-touch <laughs> policy does have reason, <laughs> you know, because uh, if you damage a work of art, it's irreplaceable, especially if the artist is already passed away you know um so we do strive to take care of those historic objects yeah well i mean you talk about getting blown away and that driving people into this i mean what was that moment for you in your life when you kind of stood up and like you know what 
I think what I want to do is run a museum. Oh, yeah. I, I remember very distinctly, because um, I, I was 18 years old, and I had just gotten my driver's license. And so my mom let me use her car to drive to the local art museum in Akron, Ohio, which was actually a very good museum. Yeah. And uh, they had an exhibition of Julian Schnabel's paintings. And uh, at the time, he was making these immense paintings, you know, like you know, wall size, 20 feet by 40 feet. And the surface of the painting was covered with broken shards of pottery. And then he painted on top of that surface. So you can just imagine what it would be like to run a brush over a surface covered with shards of pottery. And so the paintings looked like a muddy mess. But when you stood back from them, there was an image that you, that, that you could see. And it was such a visceral experience. Um, I'd never seen anything like it. And that was the moment for me that I was like, art is amazing. I want to be a part of this, you know. So, uh, Stacy, I, I got I to say, one thing that surprised me was that Katie Karate was in Crowley in 1978. And I say this because my dad's from Crowley. Oh, wow. Like, my family's okay. from Crowley. Okay. And so it's hard for me, and I, I say this with full love of, of okay. Acadia Parish, that, that I would, it was hard for me to imagine that, like, that was a thing in the late 70s in Crowley. So I, I'm curious, like, it, it how really, did it get it there? It really wasn't a huge thing in Crowley <laughs> in 1978. Yeah. It's only, like you said, when the karate, you know, because usually it was, martial arts was really for, actually, our particular system was for, men yeah. in Okinawan, you know, it wasn't really for women. So, um, yeah, in Crowley, it was uh, very small. I think the first, first dojo had like 35, 40 students, but it was mainly older people. It wasn't young people. And it was after Karate Kid came in the 1980s that there was this big, huge in the whole nation. Yeah. Oh, martial arts is cool. It can be for kids. It can be. So then that's when the big, ex, you know, explosion of children and then and then we had to evolve the curriculum had to change because you cannot teach children the same way you do adults so that had to be you know changed i, I mean i or improved think 30 <laughs> or 40 kids at a dojo and crowd's not big no it wasn't you know? it was different belts like it wasn't kids it was sure sure adults. i guess i mean like i'm yeah, just the sort, whole i was school, sort of like, like if you had told me yeah. that the first dojo opened to crowley in 1997 i wouldn't have been like <laughs> There's no way is my point, right? Like, it, so yeah. I find, like, so I guess maybe this asks about your about your husband. Then I mean, like, he pulls us together in, in '78 or takes over that business. I mean, so presumably had been there for a little while. How did yes. he get into it? He his in, his instructor sensei yeah. wanted to retire. He was going to UL at the time, and he had decided it was just too much for him. And they were only like teaching like twice a week, mm-hmm. so it was kind of a hobby for him. And um, my husband, uh, he just he had a passion for it. He had learned it in Honduras hmm. at the Boys and Girls Club. And then he moved to the States and, uh, and when he was 13. Wow. And then he met up with Master Warren Menard um, and they were training together. And then eventually, as he got higher up, he started helping him teach the classes. And since I Warren said, hey, you have more of a passion than I do. I want to go and pursue other opportunities. Why don't you just take over the dojo? Wow. And that's how it happened. Evolved. Yeah. So, uh, Luann, I mean, it kind of, one thing I know that the Hillier does a good bit, I mean, is just you talk about the museum as, you know, a place that anybody can go to, but you all do this, obviously, through, like, opening the space up to events. I mean, that's become a big piece of it. I guess I'm curious how that's changed, kind of going back to my very first question. Like, 
the, the, the sort of person or the, the, the branched out to a larger group of people who may not have thought, hey, that's a place for me. I mean, y'all do weddings there. I mean, there's lots of stuff that happened kind of in that courtyard between the Haystown House and the, the museum. I mean, it's, it's a great space. I mean, how has that really changed who shows up? Oh, yeah. So, uh, well, you know, we've really strived to create a more diverse audience at the museum as well. And one of the ways we do that is we partner um, with community organizations on various projects. For example, we've got uh, our Play Day that's coming up de- December 18th. We partnered with the Chinese American Association, and we're uh, creating a program in conjunction with the Master Shen Long Exhibition, mm. Universe of the Mind, that we have on view right now. Um, so that's really been a key strategy for us, is to partner with different sorts of organizations so that we can just get the word out more broadly about the museum and what we do and and to welcome those folks. Mm. Um, Certainly during the pandemic, we had a a drop off. You know, our visitation was 30% of what it typically is. And, uh, but at the same time, we shifted to presenting our programs online and our uh, social media network grew substantially. Yeah. so I think the new challenge now is, you know, how do we sustain both <laughs> as things start to open up again? Yeah, uh, sustainability is always the big question in e-business, COVID or otherwise. And, uh, you know, something I find really interesting about it, you know, I'm always surprised, and I shouldn't be at this point, but just like how much diversity of origin stories there are <laughs> in what people do and, and uh, you know, people taking karate and Crowley in the 1970s, right? <laughs> like, you know, this connection to the outside world that's gone through a museum. And, it, um, you know, I guess that's you know, sort of the, the collision point of business and culture and economy and people. So um, thank you guys both for, for joining me today on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Thank you, Christian. Yeah, thanks, you. Christian. My guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana have been Stacey Knight Mejia of Acadiana Karate and Luann Greenwald of the Hilliard University Art Museum. We edited this show to fit in the time slot on KRVS, and you can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Stacey and Luann and what they do by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast, which you can find on your podcast app and on our website, itsacadiana.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from the show on itsacadiana.com and on our social media. These photos were taken by Aster Morgan, and you can find more of Aster's work at astermorgan.com. Out to Lunch Acadiana is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRBS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Today's show was engineered by Aaron Thomas, and our associate producers are Molly Richard and Jan Risher. Our researcher is Leah Erdialis. I'm Christian Mader. I'm editor of The Current, Lafayette's nonprofit source for local news. And for more local news and commentary, head over to our website, thecurrentla.com, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. I'll see you here again next time for more business and conversation on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Out to Lunch Acadiana is recorded live over lunch at Tula Tacos and Amigos. Tula Tacos and Amigos offers street-style tacos, margaritas, and an open-air courtyard on Jefferson Street in the heart of downtown Lafayette. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at mitchellforeman.com.